All right, Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, as we study these verses, I want to have you do something with me tonight. Let's try to notice where Jesus's focus is and where the disciples focus is and the people's focus is. All right. Hopefully tonight through our study, you're going to see that through these episodes that we're going to take a look at, not just this one, but other things that are going to go on in our full context. Hopefully you'll see that Jesus's focus is on the father's plan for his life and what's happening in the spiritual realm. The disciples and the people's focus, unfortunately, is going to be on their plans and on the physical realm. So that's what I want you to kind of make a little note for that. Where's where's their focus? Where's Jesus's focus? Where's my focus or their focus as well? The people's focus. Jesus is focused on the father's plan for his life and he's looking at things in the spiritual realm. The disciples and the people are focused on their plans for their life and they're looking in the physical realm. That's where we're going to go tonight. Now, if as you already heard me kind of hint at it when I said, put down in your notes, where's my focus? This is our struggle too. But we must, in order to walk with Jesus in the spirit, we must focus not on what is seen, but what is unseen. So let me just remind you of that by kind of pulling out for you a few scriptures to kind of be a base for where we're going to go. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 16 through 18. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's been talking about how we have this treasure, Jesus, in us, but it's in a jar of clay to show that the power comes from him. And in verse 16, it says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Jump over to Colossians, a couple of books to the right. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and look at verses 1 through 17. Listen to how this whole section talks about where our focus should be. In Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, that sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God's coming. 
In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Remember we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Look at the next verse. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, with singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we see in this whole section, our focus needs to be on things above, not on things on the earth. And we put away what is earthly and we focus on the spiritual through the word of God, through prayer, through singing, through praising God. Jump over one book back to Philippians, Philippians chapter three, and look at verses 17 through 21. Paul says, brothers, he's just said in the previous verses how he's forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead, wanting to know Christ more. He says in verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So, where we're going to be going today is looking at Jesus' focus was on the Father's plan for his life, and he's looking at the spiritual realm. The people and the disciples, were fo their focus was on their plans and the physical. That's where we're going to go. So let's go back to our passage and let's get the scene for tonight. Jesus has just been glorified in their presence. If you were with us last week, you saw in our study that Jesus was glorified on that Mount of Transfiguration, as we call it. He's been in their presence, but Peter's focus was, was on what? He, it was on making earthly shrines to commemorate the occasion. Remember, he was like, let's make temples for you and Moses and Elijah. Let's make some tents here. His focus was on the earthly. Jesus' focus was on the spiritual. Now they're heading back down the mountain and they find the rest of the disciples. Remember, only Peter, James, and John got to see him glorified. As they come down the mountain, they found the rest of the disciples arguing with a crowd of people. Now, some of you would say, hang on, Jim, where do you see in this passage in Matthew that they're arguing? Well, good, great question. I'm glad you're checking me. It's not in Matthew. Let's look at Mark's account, though, and look at Luke's account, like we've been doing most weeks. We'll check the other gospel accounts as well to get the fuller picture. Go to Mark chapter 9 and look at verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, meaning Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? 
And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought to you my son, uh, my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jump over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 37 through 43 in Luke's account of this situation. In Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 7, it says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and, he will hardly, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son to me. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, before we get to Jesus' healing of the boy, we must deal with Jesus' reaction, which is recorded in all three accounts. Did any of you notice how Jesus said pretty much the same thing and it's recorded all in all three accounts? He said, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? We see it in Matthew 17, 17. Look again, Matthew 17, 17. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. Mark chapter 9, real quick. Go look at Mark 9 again. Look at verse 19. Mark chapter 9, verse 19. He says, he answered him, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 41. Luke 9, 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. So here we see in all three accounts, they all brought out the same thing that Jesus said, you faithless and twisted generation. So let me ask you, who is Jesus talking to? Who's he talking about? Is he talking to his disciples? Well, the answer to that question is yes. He is talking to his disciples. Go back to Matthew 17. You can see in verse 20 that the context tells us that he's talking to his disciples. In Matthew 17, verse 20, remember, he, we've already seen him say, O faithless and twisted generation. And in verse 20, uh, he said to them, because of your little faith. They asked him, how come we couldn't cast it out? He said, because of your little faith. Folks, let me just remind you, and I'm going to show you from our study in Matthew, 
they've continually showed little faith by looking at things with natural eyes instead of looking in faith to God. That's what Jesus has been trying to show them all along. He's been demonstrating his power to them by doing the miraculous in their presence, but they still don't get it. They still keep looking at things with man's eyes, not with God's eyes. Let me remind you, jump back to Matthew chapter 8. Go to Matthew 8, look at verses 23 through 27. We're going to, real quick, starting in Matthew 8, run from there to where we are tonight, and you're going to see a, a pattern here. In Matthew 8, verse 23, look at verses 23 and following. It says, And when he, this is Jesus, got into the boat, the disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So here he says, You guys have little faith. And then he demonstrates his power that he's God. And they even said, man, the wind and the waves obey him. Jump over to chapter 14, Matthew 14, verses 28 through 33. In Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, he be and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him and saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Then they all say, truly, you are the son of God. But again, in this situation, what made Peter begin to doubt? He looked where? At the wind. He looked at the wind and the waves. His eyes started looking at the physical and he lost sight of the spiritual and he lost sight of the truth because he was looking at it with man's eyes. And Jesus said, you have little faith. Go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, look at verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I didn't speak to you about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he didn't tell them about to them beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So once again, he says to them, you of little faith. Don't you remember what I've already done in the miracle of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000? Again, they keep looking at things with man's eyes. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough. And when you look at your life through the physical and you lose sight of the spiritual, the truth, the fact that God has promised he'll never lead us, leave us nor forsake us, that he'll meet all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus, that even though we're going to go through a time of maybe having a little bit of a want, we can learn the secret of being content. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He goes, I know it is to have plenty. I know it is to be in need and have want. But I've learned the secret of peace and faith. Everything I need will be given to me at the time that I need it. And he'll provide for me. I'm not looking at things with man's eyes. I'm looking at the, at the spiritual. Jump over to chapter 17. Again, verses 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast out this demon? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, so the question is, who was he talking to? Was he talking to his disciples? Yes, he was. Because when he said, oh, faithless and twisted generation, he's partially talking to his disciples. But let me ask you this question. Was he also talking to the crowd? Yes, he was. He was talking to them too. They're the twisted generation, if you will. The rest of the crowd, including the, describe, the scribes who were arguing with the disciples, are the twisted generation. Go to Philippians chapter 2. I always want you to learn how to interpret Scripture from Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 14 through 16. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, the Scripture says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Look at what he says. You are to be living your lives where you're not a negative person. You're not a grumbler. You're not a complainer. Folks, there are too many Christians out there who spend all their time grumbling about what's happening. Nothing good ever happens to me. I guess we can't have anything nice because that car just got ruined. And we're negative grumbling, looking at the world through man's eyes, people. And God says, we're actually supposed to be shining as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Folks, we, we should in this day should be the ones shining in the midst of the coronavirus. We should be the ones that are happy and at peace and of joy. Why? Because even though physically things look crazy and things look out of control and the government's out of control, you might think or you think the government's ordering having too much control or however you want to look at it. Those of us who know Christ know that God's in control and I'm not lacking. Everything I need will be provided and he's taking care of me. I'm all right. And then we can shine in this twisted and crooked generation. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. Look at verses 1 through 4. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and they came to test him. They asked him to show him a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it's evening, you say it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Again, he'd already called them an adulterous generation. Now they're a crooked and twisted generation. If you were to go back and look at Matthew 12, you'll see the same thing. Go look at Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42. And Matthew 12, starting in verse 28, sorry, 48. Try it again. 38. Allison, are you able to keep up with me as I keep changing the verse on you? By the way, it's Allison who keeps putting the scriptures up for you where I'm sending you. And I make her work sometimes because I don't even know where I'm going. So Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah, someone greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater, someone greater than Solomon is here. Folks, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's saying, you guys, you need to have spiritual eyes. That's where faith comes from. Faith is believing what God has said, even though physically it doesn't make any sense. But God's word is true and he'll keep his word. And we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. We get our eyes off of the earthly and we look at the spiritual. In the same way, those who are followers of Jesus should be people of faith. This generation we live in, this world we live in, if they don't repent and turn to faith in Jesus Christ, by faith to Jesus Christ, they will be that generation that will be judged at the judgment at the end. Now, as you can see in the context of these other passages, Jesus has been revealing himself and his power to them all along. Yet they either rejected him or they were more concerned about how they could use his power for their purpose and their plans. Now, I want to take you back real quick to go where we're going next to what Jesus has just been saying to his disciples. All right, this kind of set the stage for what I think God wants us to pull out of this passage. Go back to Matthew 16 and look at verses 21 and through 23. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Do you see it? You see the context here? He's been revealing himself and his power and what real faith by having spiritual eyes is and they keep still looking at things with the physical realm and the man's eyes, the things of man instead of the things of God. And look at what Jesus is saying. He said, I am following the Father's plan for my life. It's not an easy one. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to willingly, humbly lay down my power and authority that I have to stop this and allow it to happen because that's the Father's plan for me. And it's best. It's best for you. It's best for all of us. It's not easy, but I don't have in mind the things that I have in mind. I have in mind the things that the Father has. Peter, on the other hand, goes, uh-uh, we won't let that happen. And Jesus says, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. Jump over to chapter 16 and verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We know that the other scriptures show that this is daily. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or as we saw last time we studied this, royal splendor. So again, he's reminding them, if you're going to follow me, you've got to lay down your plans for your life. You've got to lay down how you think it ought to be. And you don't rewrite Christianity and you don't try to rewrite the Bible to make it 
where you're in charge and you got dominion and you can do whatever you want and you name it and you claim it and God's got to do it. No, you humble yourself and you say, Lord, you have a plan for my life. You created me. You saved me. You called me. You put your spirit within me. You gifted me. You have a specific plan. And I want to humble myself just like Jesus did and submit myself to the role the Father has for me, even if it's something my flesh doesn't want. Because I'm looking more to what's to come, the life that's to come. Not this life. And if that means I suffer in this life for a while, if this means I'm not married when I want to be, or if this means I don't get to have the child, but I have to adopt instead of giving birth, whatever your plan is for my life, Lord, I'm willing to submit to it. Because I don't have my eyes on what I want. I have my eyes on what you want. And for your glory, you say one day, if I trust you and let you use me for your purposes and submit my will to yours, you will reward me beyond all comparison. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this life. I'm looking for the life to come. Now, Jesus knows that they're still more focused on their wishes and their plans than God's, though. Look what happens next. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and following the verses right after the healing of the boy. We're going to come back to the healing of the boy. In Matthew 17, look at verses 22 through 23, 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Look at Mark's account of this, what happens right after the healing of the boy. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Go to Luke chapter 9, 41 through 48. Luke chapter 9, verses 41 through 48. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son to me. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your hearts or your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they didn't understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And an argument arose amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing their reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Did you see it? Jesus, again, following the Father's plan, dealing with disciples that are more focused on this life and what's best for them a group of people that are more interested in what they see than the reason why he was there, not wanting to believe, wanting just, hey, we'd like to use your power, Jesus, to heal my boy, but I don't really care whether or not you're the Messiah, the promised one. On top of that, he keeps telling his disciples, look, guys, let me tell you again, they're going to kill me. This is the Father's plan, and I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. And they don't understand. They're afraid to ask. They're distressed by it. 
But immediately they get into an argument over who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Here Jesus just say, shared with them, they're going to mock me, they're going to spit on me, they're going to kill me. We hand it over to the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah, you done with your lesson? Who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? And folks, we're like that as well. How often do we call out to God and say, God, this isn't what I had in mind. God, this isn't the plan that I had. God, things aren't working out like I thought they would. Do these prayers sound familiar to anybody? We have to be reminded that daily we take our flesh and we lay it on the altar. We renew our minds and he'll give us a plan and a direction for each day and it's best. And one day, if we allow him to use us for his purposes and we shine in this crooked and twisted generation because our eyes aren't on what we see, but on what is unseen. One day, the Bible says we will receive a glory beyond all comparison. Why? Remember that passage in 2 Corinthians 4? Because we are looking and setting our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Where's your focus? Where's your faith? Let's go back and take a look at the healing of the boy. Now, in order to get a clearer look at what's going on here in the healing of this boy... We need to look at what is here in Matthew and in the other accounts and look at something that's not here in Matthew and it's not in, in the ESV and not here in the other accounts in the ESV. Okay, let me show you what I mean. I'm going to say it to you again. I'm going to read it from my notes. We're going to, in order to get a clearer look at what's going on here, we need to look at what is here in Matthew and the other accounts and to look at something that's not here in Matthew's account in the English Standard Version and is partially here in Mark's account in the English Standard Version. Now, because I piqued your curiosity, we're going to look at what's not here first and then we'll come back to what's here. In the English Standard Version, you remember, this is a translation that used the earliest manuscripts, the manuscripts that we found that are closest to the originals. There is a verse missing. I don't know how many of you that have English Standard Version or other translations that are using the earliest manuscripts. Try to find verse 21. If you have the ESV or an NIV, look for, look for uh, uh, verse 21. You're not going to find it. Because the earliest manuscripts don't have that verse. There's no verse 21 in Matthew, and what's been added in the newer manuscripts is the verse that says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Go over to Mark chapter 9. Go to Mark chapter 9, look at verse 29. In Mark chapter 9, verse 29, you'll see that there's a half of a verse. Some of your translations have the other, have the other half, English Standard Version, and ones that use the earliest manuscripts don't have the second half. All right, verse 29, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, sorry, starting in verse 28, verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Some of your translations say, and fasting. So we see in Matthew's account in verse 21, the whole, this kind doesn't come out except by prayer and fasting is not here, but it's in later manuscripts. And in Mark's account, it's Jesus does say, uh, this kind only comes out by prayer. Earliest manuscripts don't have and fasting, but the later ones do. Let me say this to you. I believe Jesus said it all. I believe that Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. I think for sure we know he said this only comes out by prayer because the earliest manuscripts have that recorded in Mark 9. But I actually believe Jesus has said this all here, all those verses. And that's going to be important later on. We're going to come back to that. Okay. Now, 
I believe just he said these words, but we're going to look first at the seriousness of the boy's need to really get into a study tonight of what's happening in the healing of this boy. Look at the seriousness of this boy's need and the world's need of us as his disciples. That's where we're going. Look at the seriousness of the boy's need and the world's need of us as his disciples. Jesus was gone on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. This man who had a severe need couldn't find Jesus, but he found what he thought was the next best thing in his disciples, or so he thought. Now, the disciples had previously been empowered by Jesus to cast out demons and tried to do so again. If you remember in Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, look at verse 7. Let me read it to you real quick. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And he, Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, if you remember, they came back and reported all that they had done. We even see when the 72 go out, they come back and report. Even the demons are responding to us. So his disciples have been able to cast out demons, but they're not able to do so in this situation. Why? This demon was powerful and vicious. Go to Mark chapter 9 again and look at verses 14 through 29. Let's read again slowly what this demon was doing to this young boy. In Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, And when they had came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought to you my son... For he is a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him in fire and into water to destroy him or to kill him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. So why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? Well, we already saw earlier in our study, in Matthew 17, verse 19 and 20, when they came and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? Did you catch that? Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said, because of your little what? Your little faith. Whenever we try to do something in our own power or strength, we do it in the flesh and not by faith. I could take you on a whole study of that, but I'm not going to chase that one tonight. Folks, let me just say that to you again, though. Whenever we try to do anything in our power or our strength, we fail. If you remember... God promised Abraham that he and Sarah were going to have a child. But then they go many years without having a baby and they're older in years and they're unable to conceive. 
And they get together and they come up with a plan for him to sleep with Sarah's servant, Hagar. Guess what? They got pregnant. But later on, after God fulfills his promise with Isaac and the miracle of Isaac being born, 25 years after God's promise, not long after that, as the boy's a little older, God comes to Abraham and says to him, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him for me on a mountain that I'll show you. Abraham has two sons, doesn't he? He's got Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, and he's got Isaac, who was born to Sarah. Why does God say, take your son, your only son? Well, Jim, the passage says, whom you love. Maybe Isaac only loved, uh, sorry, Abraham only loved Isaac. No. If you read chapter 17 of Genesis, Abraham cries out to God and says, oh, that your blessing would come through Ishmael. He loved Ishmael. Hear what I'm about to say. God loved Ishmael. He protected Ishmael, cared for him and Hagar. When Sarah chased him out into the wilderness to have him put out there to die, God showed up, God provided, and God made a promise to Ishmael and his family and his brothers. God loved Ishmael. Don't miss that. Then why does God say to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love? Because Abraham produced Ishmael from the flesh, and the flesh counts for nothing before God. Isaac was of the spirit and of God's promise and faith in God's promise. And God did it through his power. And that's the only thing you'll be rewarded for is what God has done through you by his power. Not what you've done for God. For years we were taught this phrase, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's not what the Bible teaches. Only what's done by Christ will last. Too many of us are out there trying to do stuff in our own strength. I'm trying to serve you, God. I'm trying to do the right thing. And he's been trying to teach us all along. It's by faith in his word, his promise, and his leadership of his spirit. We walk in obedience to the specific plan he has for us on a daily basis, and we yield to his spirit. The Bible says, as I teach, I'm not to rest in my ability or my giftedness. I'm to daily prepare, pray, study. And as I teach you right now, I'm listening to him as to what to say, what not to say, where to go, what not to look at. I've done my study. I've got my notes, but I'm teaching it in the spirit as I go because I don't want it to be done by Jim. There'll be no power. There'll be no effectiveness. But there's also another reason. Not only were they unable to cast it out because of their little faith. In fact, they tried to do it on their own. Because this kind only came out through the power of prayer and fasting. Now, hang on for a second. In all three accounts, if you look closely, you can go back and double check me. We're not going to take the time to do that because I want to finish my notes tonight. In all three accounts, Jesus never prayed a prayer. And he didn't fast if you notice, Jesus sees a crowd's coming, he quickly tells the demon, come out of him, he rebukes him. See, we've been taught that in order to have power, we get all of a sudden call everybody together for a time of prayer and fasting. Like a, a moment of prayer and fasting for this episode is where the power is going to be. No. Power doesn't come through all of a sudden we're going to have a time of prayer and fasting. Power comes from a life of prayer and fasting. 
You see, if you think power is going to come because you call for a time of prayer and fasting, that's you telling God, I'm doing the right thing. I'm making the right steps. I'm jumping through the hoops. you got to come through now. But if you are a person like Jesus who lived a life of continual dependence on the Father, he spent much time in prayer all throughout his life, in the morning, late at night, all the time. He was continually talking to the Father. He only did what the Father had him do. He was being led of the Spirit in all that he did. And he was saying no to the flesh all the time. Oh, there's fasting of not eating food or watching television. But there's also a daily fasting of saying no to our, way, our own wishes, our own wants saying no to our flesh and renewing our minds. Jesus had that kind of power and authority because he had been walking in a life of prayer and fasting and he knew the Father's will and he knew that the Father had given him authority and he could speak what the Father told him to say and that demon came out because of Jesus' life of prayer and fasting. Too many of you think you can live for your own self, then call for a time of prayer and fasting and you think you're going to all of a sudden have power. It's not how it works. You need to live a life daily of saying no to yourself and yes to the Spirit. And that's the people who actually have God's power and authority in their lives. By the way, remember, all this is happening while Jesus is living a life of obedience, heading to Jerusalem to die. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. By the way, did Jesus have the authority to stop this? Of course he did. We know from John's account that in John chapter 18, he said he could have called legions of angels. But that wasn't what the father had in mind. He laid down his life and his plan for the father's plan for his life. Even though it was hard, he lived a life of fasting. And prayer. Look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they'll kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. Of course, the people were greatly distressed because they're looking at it with man's eyes. Well, Jim, don't you think it would be distressing? Yeah, if you're looking at it with man's eyes, but if you're looking at it with the spiritual realm, what was the purpose of Jesus going and being put to death as the sinless sacrifice it's a good thing. It's our salvation. When you look at it with man's eyes, it makes you sad. It makes you, makes, you, makes you say, why would he do that? But when you look at it with the spiritual eyes, you say, thank God he did that. Thank God he submitted to the Father. How many people will praise God because of your submission in the life God has for you to the Father? Right now, the folks, Jesus is not here on the earth, but he is through us, his disciples. Remember, in this passage, the man couldn't find Jesus, so he found what he thought was the next best thing, his disciples. Well, the Bible says that we are now his disciples, his hands and his feet on the earth. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to John chapter 17 and look at verse 18. John chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus is praying right before he goes to the cross. And he says this. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. By the way, how was this Jesus sent into the world by the Father? To follow the plan the Father had for him. Not to live his own plan, not to do his own thing and hope the Father was pleased. The Son does nothing by himself. He only does what the Father leads him to do on a daily basis. In the same way, we've been sent out into the world. We are Jesus' hands and feet. Now you say, Jim, where do you get that? Well, it's in the Bible. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, and that you have in the knowledge of him and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his, his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church listen which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all we're the body of Christ now on this earth. He indwells us individually and corporately, and he uses us in the parts that he has and the plan and the purposes he has for each of us. Not all of us are hands, not all of us are feet, not all of us are, are eyes or ears. The scripture talks about that in 1 Corinthians 12. Folks, find the joy of the role that God has for you. Lay aside your plan for your life and what you have in mind and daily learn how to say, Father, how would you use me today? Show me how to trust you, how to walk in the spirit. Teach me how to live a life of prayer and fasting where I'm spending time in the word, spending time saying no to my flesh and yes to the spirit. And when that time comes that you want to use me in something miraculous, even the power will be there because I've learned to daily say no to my flesh and yes to your spirit. We receive his power daily by saying no to our flesh and our plans and saying yes to his will through a life of prayer. Go back to Matthew 26. We'll get to Matthew 26 sometime, maybe this year. I just don't know. We'll see how long it takes us to get to the end of the book. But in Matthew 26, look at verses 36 through 41. This is Jesus in the garden. He's praying. In Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will or what I want but as you will, what you want. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, so could you watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he prayed a second time and he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, and he again came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. By the way, listen to what Jesus said. He said, First off, I don't want to do this. My flesh doesn't want to do this. But I am laying down my flesh and I'm submitting to your spirit. Not my will, but yours. There's nothing wrong with having plans and desires and dreams. Let the Lord know what they are. But at the same time, lay them down. And if he gives them back, 
It's from him, and it's his plan for your life. If he doesn't, that's okay, because his plan is best. But on top of that, he says to Peter, look, watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. What did Peter do? Did he pray? No. He went back to sleep. And what happened when the temptation came? He fell. He denied he even knew the Lord. Acted like he never met him. Even acted like a worldly person to try to prove that he had never met him. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, folks. Ephesians chapter 6. Look at verses 10 through 18. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against the flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Do you see this life of fasting and prayer? We're to be continually talking to the Lord. Not just in a time that we go and spend a prayer, maybe thanking God for our food, or maybe praying over a child that's sick. Those are wonderful and necessary things, and they're great. They remind us of God's power and His provision. But listen, we're to be people that pray continually, pray without ceasing, walk in the Spirit, listening to the Lord, taking our eyes off of what we see, and putting them back on what He has said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. And 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Remember, don't do anything but grumbling and complaining, but shine in this Christian generation. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Go to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I, I think if you really believe what this passage said, you, you, you'd do it. I think if you really believed it, you would do it. Listen to what it says. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But this person's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Again, fasting and prayer is a continual thing, not a time that you call separate. It's a continual lifestyle. He meditates on his law day and night. This person is like a tree Planted, transplanted, actually, the Hebrew says. Picked up from where it was and put to where it's going to prosper. Transplanted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Go to Colossians chapter 3. We saw it earlier tonight in the passage we looked at in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 17. Look again at verses 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Why are we thanking him? Because he did it, not me. Now, as we close tonight, you may not have realized this, but the father of the boy in this story in Mark's account prays. Go back to Mark's account. Look at Mark chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. I want you to see this prayer. Because actually, the father in this story, he, he should teach Jesus' disciples how to pray. And he is teaching Jesus' disciples, you and me as well, by the way, how to pray. In Mark chapter 9, look at verses 20 through 24. And they brought the boy to Jesus, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Folks, that's a great prayer. If you are honest, you and I are like the disciples. We do believe, but then we lose sight. We become people of little faith. Everyone in this room would all agree. We've all done that, have we not? Don't we need to be reminded over and over of the fact that he's brought us through before, he'll bring us through again, and the next episode comes and we're going to go, oh, what are we going to do? It's not, we're not going to make it. Oh, we'll make it. We're just little faith people. But he's teaching us. We're to count it all joy when we face trials because it will produce perseverance. The coronavirus will be, God will be praised for it because of the things that God is doing through it. What a great prayer. Folks, I'm just going to say one thing to you and we're going to close with one passage. Never be satisfied with the level of faith that you have right now. But through prayer and study of God's word, grow in your faith. Become one of those people that lives a life of fasting and prayer by growing in your knowledge of the Lord. Remember now what Peter prayed in Ephesians 1? I'm sorry, Paul prayed for the, the believers in Ephesians 1. My prayer, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for each other. My prayer is now that you'll receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you'll know him better. The hope to which he's called you, your glorious inheritance in the saints and his mighty power available to us who believe. Listen to our last passage for tonight. 2 Peter chapter 1, listen to verses 3 through 11. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. You don't need a second baptism. You don't need another filling. You have been given all of God you need. You need to learn how to daily let him have control by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities 
is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Listen, for in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you'll take your eyes off of the world, put them on things of the spirit, that your focus would not be on what man sees, but what God's saying and you'll become a person who lives a life of fasting and prayer and you experience his power that will benefit this twisted generation that we live in. I love you. We'll see you next Tuesday.